G'day, everybody, and welcome to a very, very special episode of Paddlecast Live. We've got a very special guest joining us today, someone I'm excited to talk about. Ever since we started these podcasts, I wanted to get this guy on the show. So very grateful that he's given up some of his time today. And uh, he really needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. This man has basically been a pioneer of probably half a dozen different ocean sports, including stand-up paddling and now foil surfing and foil downwinding. Uh, he's won arguably the most prestigious race in the world, Molokai to Oahu. Um, he's got some of the most famous coaching techniques known to man. He is, of course, Dave Kalama. Dave, mate, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Thank you, Chris. I kind of feel like the interview's over after that <laughs> intro. I can't do any better than that. <laughs> let let me Let me much. just ask you, how many times have you already foiled today? Or is this podcast getting uh, in the way of your foil? your foil time zero today but i just got a call from alex aguera saying that the rain is clearing up and it looks like it might be foilable so while there was no urgency on this interview a few minutes ago (laughs) it might get cut short if it clears up and gets windy all righty so we're uh we're on a limited time here folks the maliko runs blowing how just explain for those that haven't foiled, why is it such an addiction? I well, we'll start out by just scratching the surface. It's it's not like anything you've ever done before. Um, and let's say you've snowboarded, you've skateboarded, you've surfed. Any one of those, you have um, a relative sensation of what any board like sport is going to be like and and by that means I, by that i mean uh, well, sliding across the surface or rolling across the surface, surface be it on the snow on the ground on the water but there's always before. that interaction um, with the surface and, let's say and with foiling there is not that interaction you you are flying above the water so you don't get that vibration of your board um, interacting with the surface of, of whatever it is you're riding, be it snow, water, or road. Um, so that alone changes the dynamic and the experience so significantly that you, you don't have anything um, sort of to relate it to. It really is its completely own entity. It's its own sensation. Um, much more closer to flying than than anything else. It's like a magic carpet ride. Literally, like a magic carpet ride, like like the Back to the Future skateboard, <laughs> where yeah, you're you're close to the surface, but you're not actually touching the surface. And that sensation um, is really unique. And you know, the, it goes without saying that it's also very tricky at first it's it's um you know a lot of people see the board and they think okay well i'll ride it like a surfboard or i'll ride it like a skateboard and you don't it's it's more like a unicycle (laughs) than a skateboard (laughs) because there's a single point um a single point of balance that you have to be in tune with 
And when you are, you, you ride and you fly. And when you're not, um, the wipeouts can, can get pretty precarious. What was the first time, how was it the first time you tried foiling? For one, could you do it the first time? Well, my did even you with- did even Dave Kalama have a little bit of a learning curve, or did you just well just get on? I'll start explain. Flying? <laughs> uh, well, the answer is no. But let me explain. My first experience with foiling was with a device called the air chair that came from kind of the water ski world or wakeboarding world, and uh, meaning it was a, a device towed a hydrofoil um, towed behind a, a boat. And the first time we wrote it, what year was this? It, oh gosh, this would have been like 95, 96, somewhere around there. So you've been foiling two um, decades. And pretty much in one version or another. Um, but on, on the air chair, you actually sit down and you strap yourself in, <laughs> sitting down, facing forward. And you kind of ride it like a bucking Bronco. And that's what it feels like because you, you come, you lean back. You come up to the surface. It breaks the surface. It goes plunging back in. You le- you think you need to lean back to bring it up. It breaks the surface again, and you you're going up and down like a bucking bronco. But uh, with the crew I was learning with, we we're laughing at ourselves and each other so hard. It was one of the closest I've ever come to drowning because I was laughing so hard when I was underwater. I couldn't stop laughing. Then I started sucking water in and choking and laughing and strapped into this thing. So I couldn't get back to the surface quick enough. And it was a fiasco, but it, it was so funny and so fun. And anyway, that's, that's my first experience. And as we do as surfers, um, anything that you would sit on, you're eventually going to go, okay, how do we ride it like a surfboard or how do we surf it? Mm. And so that was our progression towards, cracking the code on how to stand up on this thing and ride it like you would a surfboard. And how long did that take? I mean, people look at foiling now from a stand-up paddle perspective of us. It's only been around maybe three years. How long have you guys yeah. been working on this? Well, um... Since the air chair? You know, I would say... No, after our first experience on that first day, we were, uh, it took us about two to three days to figure out that we needed to incorporate um, boots. And the reason being is the foil has so much leverage over you uh, that your ankles couldn't lock out enough to really get control of the board. And so we, we realized pretty quickly that it was dangerous. And that's also with the assumption that the foils were much different back mm-hmm. then. They're not like they are now. Uh, much smaller, much thinner, created much less lift. So you had to go much faster, um, which made it difficult to try and figure out without the support um, of your ankles being really stiff and locked out. So we got snowboard boots and bindings. That gave us the ankle support. We could then figure out how to ride it. Um, you know, we did that for 15 years before the latest version came along um, where you don't need straps. You, you don't need anything, just the foil on the board and you're good to go now. And when was, uh, were you involved with Alex from GoFoil when he was testing these early 
the stand-up paddle? Not style? initially. No, not initially. Um, he kind of was working independent. Um, although, funny enough, I did see some of the footage of, of guys taking kite foils, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, mounting them to stand-up boards and going and riding and, and doing it, you know. Not necessarily doing it well, but doing it nonetheless. Yeah. And uh, quite honestly, I was a bit frustrated with what I was seeing because while they were doing it, they weren't making it look good. At least not compared to the foiling we used to do back in the day, towing with the boots. Um, Guys were basically going straight. There was nobody was turning. Nobody was hitting whitewater. And, you know, I, from experience, know you can hit whitewater. You can do aerials. You can do flips. You can do all kinds of crazy stuff. But mm. they were so far away from that that uh, I actually tried to incorporate um, kind of a funny story. But I haven't told many people, but I'll tell you. Don't tell anybody, all right, Chris? <laughs> this isn't live. Don't worry. Anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is about, oh, gosh, four months before I got involved with Alex, so I shaped a, a stand-up foil board that I think was eh, about eight, eight and a half feet, something like that. And so my plan was put the old snowboard boot binding so I could use my boots, grab my old foil, and was thinking, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna show these guys how to do it and uh, show them what the potential of foiling is. So I build the board, I connect the foil, I uh, and then I realize my board is so much bigger than what I used to ride. If it's upside down, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get myself right and get back to the surface. So I get a couple buddies to paddle out with me the first time I go use this thing. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna tip myself over, and if I can't get back up, grab me and get me back to the surface. <laughs> so we paddle out. You know, and I go flip myself over and I'm strapped into the board and I got my paddle in my hand. I realized pretty quickly I, I can get myself back up to the surface. So, um, and then I realized, well, what if I lose my paddle while I still be able to do that? So I ax the paddle, I do it again, and I've got flotation on, so it, that's helping. And I realized, yeah, I can get myself to the surface. So I'm like, all right, get out of my way, man. I'm going to go catch a wave and do this. And I go catch a wave and I'm going across the water and it won't come up and it won't come up. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, I can't figure it out. So I go try a couple more times and I just can't get up. And, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but with a little bit of retrospect, basically my my foil was too small and I wasn't going fast enough. I wasn't going anywhere close to the speed we used to. And my board was a hundred pounds heavier than we used to ride. So it was a complete failure. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I went in with my tail between my legs and went, well, that was stupid. This, this is stupid. The whole thing's stupid, you know? <laughs> did you let that dissuade and you or did you jump straight back on? No, it, it really deterred me. Um, yeah, yeah I, I was like, I'm over it. <laughs> and then I saw the videos like everybody else mm. of Kai, you know, going down the coast and went, Whoa, that's pretty cool. You know? And so, uh, 
I actually wasn't I wasn't on board though, just because I saw the videos. I thought it was really cool, but I was like, yeah, didn't get me excited to go do it. Yeah. And then uh, I ran into Kai down in Fiji a little while after I saw those videos, and and begrudgingly he convinced me to to go tow around on his board um, that he's been using. And uh, it was much smaller at that point, like a little teeny surfboard with a, a foil. And I was like, all right, all right, I'll try. And I did, and I actually did okay, you know, without the boots and bindings. I was surprised. But it still wasn't enough to get me over the hump. And then when I ran into Brett Lickle back on Maui, and this is after uh, Alex had started producing uh, some production stuff very early on, but, but it was now available. Mm-hmm. Um, again, begrudgingly, Brett Local got me to go try his stuff and, uh, I did it still wasn't over the hump, but I was more doing it just to, okay, I did it. Are you happy now? You know? And then I ran into him another day down there or the next day. And again, he was like, come on, you gotta do it. You gotta do it. And, All right, whatever. I jump on, I go do it. Still not over the hump. And on the third day, I'm like, okay, well I can do this. But I was going straight, you know. The thing still scared me. Um, I was nervous not having my boots on, and I made a little bit of a, a turn, and that the lights went off or on or whatever, and uh, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. And I went back out, got another wave, did another little turn, and uh, did not get back on my stand-up board for <laughs> a year after that moment. <laughs> So, so that was the switch. Yeah. The the switch got, just got clicked. clicked. I saw the light and <laughs> and it was all in. All in. I, I I still cannot believe that I so begrudgingly kinda got into it, but I thank my friends Brett and Alex that uh kind of pushed me to get over that hump, but boy am I glad I did. What was the uh what was the progression like? Did you ever think you? I just saw you posted on Instagram last week. You're doing flat water pump starts. Did you ever think you'd be paddling around? Yeah. Is that Kahului Harbor on flat water pumping? Kahului Harbor, right next to the dock. Yeah, I'm gonna get that up on the screen for those watching this. But um, um, flat water pump starts. How hard are they? Well, depends. And did you ever if think you could do one? No, I I tried with like. The first time Austin did it, um, I tried. And I was so, so, so far. I was 100 <laughs> miles away from being able to do it yep. that I thought well, it was never possible. You know, And then the boards got smaller and the wings got bigger, and I tried again. And I was still miles and miles away from ever doing it. And I would half-heartedly try every now and then, and it didn't even seem like it was – even in the universe I was in. So um, never really expected that I would be able to do it. And um, yeah, the wings have gotten so much better. My boards that I've been working on lately have been um, helping my cause. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to try it again. And uh, I think on my third try I kind of saw the light or I learned the technique a little bit of, of what needed to happen and so on my fourth try 
um, I got I got up. You saw the the video. Actually, there was the, my fourth try. I got up, and I realized it was possible. And that's when I went and grabbed my phone and had my my younger son <laughs> film me. Yeah, doing it. So you got yeah, a pretty big smile on your actually, face at the end of that video. You look pretty stoked. <laughs> no, I was I was so happy with myself that I that I did it because I, I really didn't think that was ever going to be something I could do. And and you know in the scheme of things, it's really not that significant. It at this point will serve no great function mm. for me, other than sort of a a mental barrier that I never thought I'd be able to do. And, I can do it. So it's kind of cool, but you know, in, the, in my day to day experience of foiling it, I, you know, I'm not going to do that and go, Oh, that was really fun. Cause you know, it, it looks like hard work brings me right up to the brink of having a heart attack in order to do it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that'll ever become a thing? Flat water uh, pump racing? Yes, I do. I honestly do. Um, you tell me the other day they did one in. Didn't Tomo do one in Japan? Tomo did one in Tomo's Japan. Tomo's actually listening on the live stream on. right now. Shout out to Tomo. Oh, yeah. The Japanese foil pioneer. Those guys did a flat water foil race? They did a flat water foil race. He posted it on Instagram. Um, I think it was on Lake Biwa, maybe. Some, I don't know I'm if sure I'm getting it right. That correctly. But uh, <laughs> I, I know he did a post, and I know they did a race, and that's for the important thing but from two years ago I, when i saw austin pump my brain started running wild with ideas of what this could become and uh yeah i've sort of seen that as a possibility for a long time and i i think the smaller guys are it's not necessarily smaller guys guys with really good strength to weight ratio mm. i think is is really more the important thing yeah. um that don't have any trouble paddling and pumping up onto the foil and pumping around um, for sure. Well, I mean, Tomo proved it already the, the, that you can have a, a flat water pumping race. Um, and as more people get into it and the, the foils get um, more proficient or, I mean, there's nothing really that new under the sun for foiling and foiling design. It just depends on what your objectives are. You know, I mean, what, what are your objectives? You're mainly doing downwind foiling now, right? Well, downwind and wave riding. That's, oh, absolutely. Mm. I mean, riding a wave on a foil is an incredible feeling. And I mean, I love it, but, uh, I'm having just as much fun downwinding which, you know, downwinding was always a lot of fun, but it was sort of a substitute for surfing. Mm. Now, I'm just as happy to go do a Maliko run on my foil board as I am getting a, a good, you know, paddling wave riding session. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, do you, you see... get sucked into the moment for 40 minutes straight, you know? Well, actually, I had my fastest run the other day, 30 four fifteen. Um, you know, and the harbor? prior to that my fastest run was thirty six oh five. So that's Maliko to Kahalui? Yes, that's so that's kind of the downwind corner of Maliko, you know, just outside the entrance. Mm -hmm. 
to the entrance of Kahului Harbor. Um, and what would guys? Thirty-four fifteen. I think that's getting close. I'm not going to say it's the fastest because I know Kai's had a really fast one. What's... I want to say it was around thirty-four. I don't know exactly what it was though. Do you remember your best time on an unlimited to the harbor entrance? On an unlimited, on an 50, it's in the 54, 54 minute zone, and on my one man, wow. fifty two minute. And I want to say the fastest that I know of on a one man might even be as low as forty eight minutes on you know just a smoking crazy day. So for you, it's more than fifty percent faster from an eighteen footer down to a five footer. Yeah, it's almost half half the time, a little bit more. What's the... Yeah, uh, that's the extreme. That's like my fastest. I'd say my my average is probably going to be more like 36 to 30... Yeah, say 36, 37. But you know what? It, and, and this is a really interesting thing that, that kind of fascinates even me is I'm almost having more fun not trying to go as fast as I can. Because when, you, when you're going as fast as you can, especially when I'm trying to... I mean, when I think speed, I think my record. And when I think my record, I'm going to go as hard as I can and try mm. and break my record, which means you aren't really taking the time to enjoy the the ride. and Because you've got to be attacking constantly. and You're looking just for the next bump to keep you moving and keep your average up and while it's fun to kind of look at your top speed, top speed really doesn't matter much. It's your average speed that is going to dictate what your mm. ultimate time is. And so you're always just trying to keep that average way up. Um, and by the way, so a 3415 is about a six, it's over 16 or it's right about 16 miles an hour average wow. for that distance. So but anyway, 25 K an hour average yeah so the point being that you are in such attack mode and you're at such a level of fatigue that you don't really have a, an opportunity to truly enjoy it until you get mm. to the harbor and you can kind of relax but what i've been doing um that's been kind of fun is making a little game out of it for myself once i get up on foil i put my paddle in one hand and go okay let me see if i can make the whole run without paddling and so now it becomes about connecting the dots staying up which sets you in a completely different mindset where you enjoy the ride and you look to make connection points and you kind of start to flow mm-hmm. a lot more. And when you get in that sort of flow state, boy, you just, you, you, you get out of your own way and your mind, you know, you're just in the moment, you know, cause you have to, you have to be so there and so present to ride a foil board that, uh, it's really, really fun. Really sounds, enjoying it. Sounds very zen. This is getting it, almost it uh, is. spiritual and philosophical here, Dave. Do you see? Do you see <laughs> well, visions when you're out there on the Maliko run? I don't see visions, but there's times, like, to even bring you in onto my board for one experience I had just a couple of weeks ago. So five summer stories. Um, is an old surf movie and that surf movie the main soundtrack was done by a, a band called honk and i have a bunch of honk songs on my playlist when i'm doing a malika and 
One comes on, I'm riding my foil board, and it just brings me right back to being this little teeny grom. And in, in my mind, I'm like, how, it, how could I ever have imagined that however many years later, I'd be riding the ocean, literally riding the ocean, deep blue ocean, listening to my favorite soundtrack to my favorite surf movie. And it was like, it brought me right back to being this, this little kid and the amazement of surfing. And it, it was, it was almost spiritual, but yeah. more so it was just pure joy, just <laughs> pure joy. So there's something, uh, there's something about foiling. I've played around with foiling a bit the last couple of months and, uh, I've kind of had the same feeling. It's almost like it takes you back to being a kid when you learn how to surf again. For starters, you're literally learning yeah. again because it's humbling the first time you do it. And uh, oh. after that, it's that I mean, joy, it, that pure joy that you're talking about. It really comes back. It, if you haven't foiled, the only thing that, that I can think of that comes close to describing not so much the sensation of riding, but the, the feeling and the fun of it is, the, is when you're a kid and you learn how to ride a bike. Right, so you jump on a bike, you take a few diggers, and you get intimidated, and you're wondering if this is even possible, and is this fun, and you know, and all of a sudden you're doing it, and you're rolling along, and you're not falling, and you're steering the bike, and you're like, I'm doing it, <laughs> and this sense of freedom comes over because now I can go faster mm. than I can run, and the horizon is, you know, not the the limit anymore or the end of the block is at the limit and it's like wow I, this is amazing right well that's that's the adult version foiling is the adult version of that i think that's a really good word freedom that's uh that's a good way to describe it it's a very liberating experience yeah yeah so what yeah, was but the... you earn it you, you don't just show up and go <laughs> foiling <laughs> You have to earn it. Well, you've had, uh, we got a shout out from uh, Jake in the comments. How old are you, Dave? I think you're making a few of the young boys feel a little guilty with these flat water pump starts. <laughs> it's, it's nothing they can't do. <laughs> Trust me. It, I'm, but I'm 55. Jesus. You've been doing this for, you started as a professional windsurfer, right? Or you, your first ocean career was as a windsurfer. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, you posted and a I classic was, shot up here on Instagram. I'm going to get up on the screen the other day. That layback. Yeah, that that layback. Yeah, 80s style. I mean, at that at that time during the middle of my um, windsurf career, I was literally probably surfing as much as I was ever windsurfing. And mm -hmm. I found that the more I surfed, the better my windsurfing got. And the more I windsurfed, the better my surfing got. So I really did both of them a lot to help propel my my windsurf um skills and techniques forward as quickly as i could when you weren't born in hawaii right you got hawaiian no born in california but is your family hawaiian yeah so my father's pure hawaiian um so that that connects me to hawaii and i have a lot of family or ohana um throughout the islands and all over sort of the west Western United States. Um, but yeah, that, so my father was my, my connection point to, to Hawaii and the Kalama name. Yep. 
But you were born in California and you grew up skiing. Is that right? Well, I was born I was born just down the street from Quick Blade headquarters at Hogue Hospital. Really? Less less than a mile away from from Quick Costa Blade Mesa. and shout out to Jimmy. Yep, Costa Mesa, California. I've driven past that also. Um, right next to Newport Beach. So um my youth was in that vicinity. Uh and then I ended up going to high school in Mammoth, so that got me into skiing. And then uh tried really hard to be a ski racer. Yeah. Um, as I was finishing up high school and I took a year off from school and worked up at Snowbird in Utah and trained and worked on the race department. Then I went back to school that had a good racing program and, and joined up all the guys I raced with in high school and, uh, to sort of bypass over that quickly, basically it didn't work out. <laughs> and so, um, I was kind of floundering rudderless and thought, well, I was just getting into windsurfing at the time and Maui's the place. And I had an uncle that could help get me on my feet. I'm just going to go regroup over there, figure out what's next and, and I'll go from there. But, uh, yeah, plan, plan B ended up becoming plan A once I sort of started getting into windsurfing and, and falling in love with it. And, uh, it worked out. Yeah. Right. And what was, uh, did you, you competed professionally? Windsurfing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I Probably at the peak of the sport if it was in way. the 80s. Yeah. I, I I moved here in July 2nd of 85 um, and worked my way up into the, the top ranks within a couple of years and uh, won every major wave sailing event at Hukipa at one time or another. Um, and even to the point of beating Robbie Nash in his heyday in a final at Hukipa, which, yeah. you know, and ended up winning, winning a car and some cash. And I think it's still the, the richest wave prize sailing event or whatever, um, to this point. So oh. it, was, it was, I was right in the mix of, a good one of for it the all. Resume. Beating Robbie on Maui. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and while a lot of people know Robbie as, Nash, the company and Kiter guy. Mm. There was a time where you know he was the Michael Jordan of windsurfing, or the Elvis Presley, or however you want to refer to him. But he was the guy. Yeah. And so to beat Robbie when when he was in the middle of his reign, you know, at least it meant something to me. Yeah. And what uh, you know, what be- happened to windsurfing? Oh, uh, you know. It, Mountain biking, kiting, and the reliability on really specific conditions mm. really started to limit um, windsurfing's accessibility. And the sport, quite honestly, got so focused on the high end um, mm. that it lost the focus on the entry level. And, and so a large group of people moved up through... Um, all the different phases of, of windsurfing and there wasn't enough people to replace that initial wave mm. and it slowly started to phase out after, you know, a good 20 year run, let's say maybe, maybe so not even that much. It lost its base. And kind of did, it kind of did. And that's when things you could rely on, um, mountain biking, kiting, 
more was the final nail in the coffin. It didn't really initiate the demise of windsurfing. Mm. I think just having these really large events with a lot of money involved and not having an event because the wind didn't show yeah, sort of probably started to compromise potential sponsors, um, interest, you know, cause they, they didn't know it was, it came too much of a risk yeah. to invest the marketing dollars into something you couldn't be sure was going to, to happen, you know? There's some interesting parallels in a lot of ways with uh, stand-up paddling. We talk these days about having lost the connection with the base and trying to get back to the grassroots. You've been around since day one of SUP, and you did some of the biggest races. You won Molokai in 2010, I believe. What's changed in your in your eyes over the past 10, 15 years? In regards to stand-up? Stand-up paddling. And why were you- it seemed um, it hasn't done the wins. It was never... It didn't peak like windsurfing, and it hasn't dropped off like windsurfing, but it's definitely been a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, you know, I, I think part of what made it grow was the simplicity and the pureness of just getting on the water and cruising around, and, and with the right equipment, it was really accessible, you know, a very low uh, sort of boundary of entry. Mm. And so... Anybody could do it. You, you know, I'm most people that have been in the sport since the beginning remember the old 12 foot Laird board. Yeah. Um, it made it doable. And so, you know, you didn't have to be a super athlete or have incredible balance to get out on the water. And, and just that fearness of sliding across the water, looking around at the scenery, a totally different perspective than anybody had experienced. Mm. At that time, meaning not sitting down or not lying down on a board. So literally your eyeballs are much higher up off the water, which increases your visibility down into the water and out towards the horizon. Um, so that difference of perspective, mm. I think, had something to do with, you know, the experience of it and, and it being different enough than canoe paddling or, or prone paddleboarding at the time. Um, and so it was fun. It was just easy to go out and have fun and it was simple and you didn't have to learn some special technique to just do it. Now, you know, I can get into the woods on technique, but if you can put the paddle in the water, pull on it, you will move forward. And yeah. so you're doing it, you know, it's not rocket science. Um, not rocket science. And and I think a lot of people, and it's a, it's a very standard phenomenon in almost any given sport um you get so into it you want to progress the sport you want to progress the technique and it's very natural to develop faster lighter equipment come up with with more efficient more effective techniques and Mm. the the focus of the sport um evolves and moves forward and at times it's very easy to get caught up in that, that momentum of a new sport, pulling it away from its origins um, and, and to some degree forgetting what was so important about what brought you or what attracted you to it initially. Mm-hmm. And while windsurfing really went through that dynamic um, and is part of the reason of its downfall, I think, um, 
stand up paddling to some degree is experiencing that same phenomenon. Mm. And maybe there'll be a little bit of move back away from the high end. And, and that's what I've been preaching for a while. You know, this as well as anybody I've been trying to get inflatables to be the standard racing vehicle as opposed to, you know, super light carbon 14, 16, 17 footers that you can't travel with. Mm. Right. So you, you are limiting, um, the accessibility just by the mobility of the equipment. Whereas if you move to inflatables, transport, uh, transporting of equipment is no longer an issue or a barrier. And the compromise that you have to accept in using inflatable boards versus top of the top high end epoxy boards or hard boards um, in terms of percentage is quite small. Mm. But when you're a, when you're a pro and you're so focused on going as fast as you possibly can, you're not willing to accept those compromises. Yeah. Uh, but if you can stand back and, and take a look at the landscape from a much broader perspective, you understand that we are racing tricycles. Mm. You literally can almost pedal a tricycle as fast as you can paddle a yeah. stand-up board, top-end board. All right. So when you talk about racing and you talk about speed, it's very relative. Yeah. Right? So if, if we're not you're Formula compromising... One. We're not Formula We're not even one. the Formula One of the ocean. We're probably the slowest <laughs> paddling craft in the ocean. Exactly. So if, if we're talking a difference of 7.5 miles an hour on the fastest epoxy board versus 6.9 miles an hour on an inflatable board, mm. is anyone really going to notice if they all have to use the same equipment? Well, that's the thing. That all be 10% slower. So. The results would still be the same the results will still be the same. But what will be different is the accessibility to everyone to go mm. and do it. And and while we, when you say racing, you think, oh, okay, I, I want to get a medal. I want to compete. I want to be on the podium. While the guys that have sponsors are highly motivated to do the best they can, the reality is almost every single racer there is not there to get the medal or the podium, they're there because it's fun. And they, mm. well, they like the social aspect. Yeah. And that's that's what, a big thing that we've maybe lost a little bit of focus on, the social that's side. That's really what dictates the health of the sport. Maybe not the evolution of the sport, and maybe not the high end and progression of the sport, but the health of the sport is dictated by the level of participation, mm. and that's dictated by how much fun people are having. So, if we can't make it really fun and accessible, the racers can race all they want and make expensive and new technology and yada, yada, yada on down the line. That's cool. Trust me. I understand that. And I understand their motivation, but that's not helping the health of the sport. And if the health of the sport isn't good, then racing will be, uh, you know, an unfortunate byproduct that will eventually suffer from poor health. Mm. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think you're spot on with uh, the focus and it being too elite at times. We certainly need that, you know, that top 1%, that aspirational level of athlete. But 
I think we yeah. can all agree and, and that I don't the want to, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm hammering those guys because to be that good and to be the best in the world at any given sport, you have to be selfish. Mm. The focus has to be on you. You have to train. You have to push your yourself and, and develop your equipment. And, and so I totally get the mentality of where they're at. They're not worried about their health. They're worried about winning so that they can move up the ladder of, of the ranks and sponsorships and make a living at what they love doing. And so I don't fault them for for their mindset or what their objectives are. They, it has to be that way in order to be successful. But is it but a short-term success? Well, it's more about them. It's not about the health of the sport or the sport in particular. Mm. Like what I say, it, it, it's something you accept as a top level competitor, but their objectives are different than I think what the the sport needs. Mm. Well, I think we've seen lately that, a, um, a movement to back towards the fun side of racing. Like we were talking the other day, the, the funnest race I did all year last year was this race in Thailand, the 11 city tour of Thailand, the 11 islands. It wasn't even a race. They didn't even bother taking times. Um, most people there just kind of for a holiday <laughs> and to paddle four or right. five hours a day was the excuse to be there. And that was, that was the funnest right. race. Uh, when I finished that, I was like, I, I love stand up paddling again. Like it really got me fired up and every single person that was there and every single person that wasn't there. Cause we just opened up the entries a few days ago and it sold out in six hours. The race isn't for 10 months. So I think those kind of events and we go on the Glagla next week in France, there's 600 people on the water in the middle of winter, just because it's an experience and there's a handful of pros there, but I mean, 99.9% .9 of people go to that race just for the experience. And I think those kind of events, you see like the Chatterjacks in America doing the same thing. There's definitely a pushback towards either the adventure side of things or just the pure fun, the pure joy side of paddling. So I think the sport's healthy yeah. at the base. We just might have, we just need to recalibrate a little bit. I couldn't agree more and you're spot on it's exactly right i mean we don't need a room full of really intelligent people to figure <laughs> out how do we get it to grow again you just need to step back and look at what's working and mm. just be smart enough to go well everyone's showing up at that one and they're not showing up at at those other races that now don't even exist like the paddle of the battle of the paddle or whatever mm. so well, let's do what those guys are doing because it's obviously working. You know, that doesn't, yeah. you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. It so, is a very simple like, sport kind of, that we've made very yeah. complicated for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and I'm probably as guilty as anybody, you know. I mean, I, I teach technique and I love it. And Jimmy Terrell and I just are so passionate about teaching it. Um, and, and at times we get into the woods breaking down the technique because we're so into it. But, uh, well, I it, think there's still definitely a place for you, that. We need that. Um, oh, there's definitely a place for it. Cause when you get into it, you want, you want that information, you want that knowledge and you want to get better. And, and that's what we do. Yeah. Cause we're, we're so into paddling just in all of its forms. Mm. But, um, yeah, the, the beauty of it's just getting on the water and doing it and that social aspect and the health and, yeah, it's just, it's fun. We, we don't. Yeah, I was talking yesterday with Mike from Stand Up Magazine, and we kind of concluded that SUP is basically the fun runs of the water. Yes, that's a, that's a great, great way to look at it. So are you coming to Thailand in November then? 
We'll save you a spot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're going to be able to foil it, but uh, you know, jump back on the jump back on the big board. Have you have you been on a race well, board at any time in the past two years? Uh, well, define race board. <laughs> <laughs> not a not with a foil attached to it. <laughs> with a in regular that old case, thing. No. <laughs> Would you ever make? No, but my current race board is going quite well. So, <laughs> <laughs> what's what's your thoughts on foil racing? I know we had a little philosophical discussion the other day, but if you can just repeat a little bit of what we talked about, where do you see foiling going in terms of lifestyle and in terms of racing? Well, um, I think while there should be races and there probably will be races, it's, it's a natural evolution of, of any given sport to compete at it. Um, because that can be the conduit to getting that social aspect going and development. And there's, there's a lot of positives that can come from it. But like I explained earlier, where I'm almost enjoying more not trying to get my fastest time and, and focusing more just on the ride and getting into that kind of zenny flow state, yeah. um, I, I don't want to see that get overlooked or bypassed in the pursuit of who is the fastest and who has the fastest stuff. Mm. Um, because it's such a fun sport just to do. And for sure, let's have channel races. The going from Maui to, to Molokai is the ultimate downwind run. Yeah. And people can, it's fun to give something uh, to, to aspire to. And just doing that run, forget your time forget your place when you finish that that run it's amazing it's amazing and so let's make that the focus of what racing foils is going to be about at least in the open ocean the the pumping around lakes that's going to be a little more specific and kind of niche and yep. and fun to to get people together and and you know have a race and maybe instead of having the pump pump up off of flat water we can make little ramps to slide down and so you hit the water with enough speed to just pump and and there's eventually different categories so you know yeah. you and I don't have to race against people like Zane and Austin and and it's fun yeah you make it fun. Um, and I just don't think because we've gone through the process enough now, let's not lose sight of what's really important and what's going to keep bringing people into foiling and what's going to help it grow. And, and, and it's, mm. it's that fun factor. Yeah. And by nature, foiling is um, got a fairly high barrier. It's intimidating when you first learn uh, the equipment isn't cheap. You know, so it's it's got enough uh, uphill battles on its own, but everyone's working to make it easier to do, more accessible. Um, mm. And so, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm going down the coast, and I I just wish that these top level surfers or these really great paddlers that I know of could experience 
what I'm experiencing, not because I'm going super fast that I'm about to set some new time record on the Maliko, but because the the feeling and the sensations and the experience of riding those really big kind of almost ground swells that are moving through the water that you would surge with on a stand-up or a canoe, but you couldn't actually move as fast as they are and stay up with them. Yeah. Well, now you are on a foil. You are riding those big ones that were unrideable before. Mm. That's insane. So, you know, before I get too far into the weeds and completely forget the question, <laughs> <laughs> fun. Keep it fun. Keep it fun for those people that aren't here to try and set a time record. Yeah. You know, make it accessible to them. Make it focused on giving them a pat on the back and, and yeah, he did it. That was amazing. You know, and, and mm. make sure that everyone enjoys it. And, and, you know, as a general philosophy, uh, it, that was kind of, you know, sort of what we were touching on the other day when we were having a conversation. I think that's a pretty good philosophy you got there. Um, how about in terms of making the barrier to entry lower and foiling? Like it's progressed so far. If you look back at that video Kai posted of his, his famous, yeah. like he's chopped off 12.6 or something. He's going down the coast on an 11-footer. It just looked, it looks ridiculous if you can look at it now. In three or four years, yeah. we've progressed so far. In another three or four years, is there going to be a new type of foil, a new type of board? I knew you're very much into the board design with Kalama Performance Boards. How easy or how much easier can we make it? Um... I don't know. I'm working terribly hard to make it easier. And I know I am not the only one. Everyone's, you know, doing their best to mm. evolve the designs and make it easier and, and foils that are easier. Um, you know, not too long ago, I got to try one of the e-foils and those make it easier. Those are the best ways to learn, but you know, they're expensive um, so not everyone's going to have access to using one of those, but mm. I was surprised at how easy it was to ride those. If you can't get one of those, you know, behind the boat, behind a jet ski, uh, start out behind one of those and don't think wakeboarding. Mm. Don't, don't like hit it and bring it up to 15 <laughs> miles an hour. You'll be ass over tea kettle before you even know what happened. It's, you start slow. It's baby step your way in. Mm. Um, these things get away from you quick if, if you're not ready for it. And one, one of the best pieces of advice I give to people when they're starting is when you feel like it's getting away from you, don't stick around to see how it ends. <laughs> get out. <laughs> Hit the eject button. Hit the eject button. Get out. Live the fight another day. So essentially what you're doing is you're learning how to control the wipeout. And when you mm. do that, you drastically reduce the risk um, of, of hitting the foil or, or having any kind of injuries, right? Have you done that? Um, and have, you, have you hit the foil? Um, Badly? You know, knock on wood, not bad. Mm. Uh, but I have almost a disproportionate amount of respect and, and fear of that foil because I know how quickly it can get away from you. So 
yeah. I operate pretty conservatively, even though you might see images that seem aggressive. Um, trust me, I have a very well thought out exit strategy <laughs> before I try anything, you know, and I probably practice my exit strategy before I'll try something just so that when I get to that point where things are out of control, I know how to get myself um, away from the situation as safely as possible. Mm. Where some of these kids, you know, namely my son, I wonder sometimes if he knows how dangerous it is because of the way he rides, uh, he doesn't seem to have any fear <laughs> of what's going on. What's, uh, what's Austin up to these days? Is he still 100% on the foil? Because he's probably been uh, the most, like, Austin, Kai, Zane, these guys, they've been pushing it more than anyone. Yeah. Um, no, he's not 100% on the foil. He's 100% into surfing. And, you know, I, to me, it's obvious he's, he's much better at foiling than he is at anything else. But, he, you know, and, and I'm happy about it. He loves surfing. Yep. And so he spends a lot of time on a shortboard or a soft top or basically whatever he can get his hands on, which is, is what he should be doing at this point, just expanding his um, mastery of surfing, learning technique, getting that experience and, and compiling those 10,000 hours that people refer to as, mm. as mastery. So um just put as many miles as you can on anything you can ride and it all equates to helping everything you'll do. Mm. But, uh, more specifically when it comes to his foiling, it's, it's, he's a freak show, man. Yeah. He is a freak show. I'm just watching some of his, um, uh, his videos on Instagram. Now he does some pretty crazy stuff. Yeah. It, and I, you know, unfortunately I, I see some of the aerial stuff and, and I, I'm not easily impressed or overwhelmed with some of the air stuff, even though it's incredible. Don't get me wrong. We did a lot of air stuff back in the toe foiling days. So I've seen <clears throat> some pretty crazy stuff. Now, you know, we, of course we were connected with the boots and the whole thing, but the movements are similar doing flips, doing twists. I've seen much bigger versions of that back when we were connected. Um, yeah. So I'm not easily impressed with that stuff, but what blows me away, Chris, absolutely astounds me is the turns that he's figured out how to make on a foil board. I, I honestly thought there's, he's breaking the law somehow, <laughs> some kind of universal scientific law. He's broken physics. He's breaking it. Yeah. He's broken <laughs> physics. You you shouldn't be able to do that with a foil. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what astounds me and impresses me. And, and I just, it's like, it doesn't add up. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how he's doing it, you know, and I'll be out one day kind of on my own trying to figure some of this stuff out. I'll be like halfway through my bottom turn. All right, snap off the top. Like Austin does. <laughs> and I almost start laughing to myself in the middle of a ride. Cause it's just, I'm like, oh, my son's my inspiration now, which is really a cool thing, but it's funny too at the same time. And uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I'm. He is my inspiration because the turns he does, I just, it's amazing. And now I's, I'm just looking through his Instagram. He's getting on the wing surfer by the looks of it. Yeah, that's another thing. He is everyone on Maui getting into the the wing. 
Yeah. Is that the it, new craze? It, it kind of is the new craze. It kind of is the new craze. It, um, it allows you a really good opportunity to figure out how to foil. Like I've, I've talked to people, that's how they learn how to foil was on the wing. Yeah, right. Which is really impressive to me because, um, I mean, that's learning to ride a unicycle, juggle, and pat your belly at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done it? Have you tried the wing? Yeah, I'm into it. I, I, I'm having a ton of fun with it. Um, it yes, it, when, when the wind picks up, foiling's not over. Like if it's not enough to really do a good downwinder, mm-hmm. but it's enough to blow out the surf, break out the, the wings, and you're having a ball. Yeah. In fact, some people I know, you know, first they got into riding waves, and then that was that's all they did. Now they've gotten into winging, and they don't even ride waves anymore. <laughs> they wait for the wind to come up and go winging. So it's, it's, that's the interesting progression. It seems we've lost a lot of a lot of good men and a few good women from sup racing into foiling. <laughs> like they're just dropping, they're dropping like flies. As soon as they do well, a downwinder on a foil, it's like I'm not doing a sup race anymore. It's actually to the point I mean, now where I think of, events have got to be careful. That they don't cannibalize themselves by offering a foil division. I look at what Molokai has done, what the Gorge in particular has done, um, the big race in Western Australia, King of the Cut. They've basically been putting on the foil race because people want a foil, obviously, which is a good thing, but they put it on at the same time as the sup race, and everyone just jumps ship over to the foil race. I think events have got to be careful well, to separate them if they want to keep the sup aspect. It's a double edged sword. You can use it in your favor, or, you know, it can cut you, meaning. You don't hold the foil race the same time you have the stand-up race, but you can tap into a whole nother community and make the event bigger. So mm. that way the stand-up paddlers can do the foil race the next day or whatever the situation is. But um, you can potentially get more people to your event mm. if you just structure it such that it's conducive to both and allows the people that do both the opportunity to to do the stand-up race or the canoe or whatever it is. And then the next day do the foil race. Mm. And so now it's, they're helping and, and they're, you know, collaborating with each other rather than cannibalizing each other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think that should be an unwritten rule for events that you got to separate the foil. Cause I know a lot of the guys go to the gorge um, and they just, they want to do everything. They want to do both. But if they have to choose, it's a pretty easy choice these days, apparently. Well, for some people, it is. You know, people that have less, people that are less reliant or dependent, I should say, on sponsorship mm. are more inclined to do what they enjoy. Yeah. And for some people, that's, that's foiling. And other people don't have that freedom <clears throat> to, to make a decision based purely on their own selfish um desires yeah and so i understand you know the guys that are sponsored by stand-up companies they got to go do stand-up it makes sense yeah um but if you structure it in such a a way and tap into both those communities and allow people that do them both um you know they're stoked the event's more fun everyone goes away going oh my god that was a great event and i did boiling and stand-up and had a great time and you know, more people there. Yeah. That's what we're playing with the 12 towers in a couple of months. One of the big races over here in Australia, they're going to do a foil race, but keep it the day before. 
conditions pending. Um, speaking of enjoying yourself, are you still doing the Kalama camps in Fiji? And am I invited this year? Still doing, <laughs> still doing the Kalama camps. Um, you know, like everything else, they're evolving, and and the island of Namotu is evolving and getting better. And um, you know, the one constant is the surf and the wind and all the activities are incredible but the food is getting better the accommodations are getting better um tom and colin and my storytelling abilities are getting better (laughs) (laughs) um yeah just it's still really fun and and i'm i'm having a great time sharing um what namotu has to offer all the technique stuff the stories uh, all the experiences we've had and, and just that's a really special place. And, you know, if you, it, most of the time they're already booked before we even advertise. So it, it is hard to get in, but reach out, get your name on the list. Openings do come up. Um, and it's a, it's a lot of fun. And I mean, there's a reason we have such a high return rate because it's a ton of fun mm. and, People don't want to miss out on that. And it, uh, I mean, for me, before I did the camps and I'm talking back in the nineties, I used to go down there and I'd look at it as my therapy and I'd just come home so rejuvenated and have such a, a different, um, more grounded perspective on everything. So, you know, I absolutely love it. And you, you talk about Fiji and you think about the surf and I mentioned the food and all that, but, Fijian people, they got it figured out. Yeah. Just, they have so little, yet, yeah. No stress. And they're just happy. They're happy. Yeah. And it shows, it's authentic. And, and boy, you tap into that and just get a little, little, you know, taste of that. It's, uh, boy, it's good for your soul. And we're just looking at some photos now at Kalama Camp. For those that don't know, it's basically a private, Fairly exclusive camp on the island of Namotu, which is near Cloudbreak in Fiji, a bit of a dream destination for surfers. It's essentially this magic little island. It only fits about 20 people, right? The whole island is just a little uh, resort. Yep, 24 is sort of the magic number for uh, guests. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I've I've got five coaches, like I mentioned, myself, Tom Carroll, Colin McPhillips. Yeah. uh, Some legends. Rory. Yeah. Um, Rory Chapman from Australia, really good stand-up foil. Um, Michelle Crompton, who runs uh, a lot of the Kalama camps and helps keep them functioning properly. <laughs> and Jimmy's been um, over there a few and, times, right? Yeah, Jimmy yeah. Terrell I kind of rotate guest coaches in, and Jim Terrell's in that rotation of coaches that comes every every other year or whenever he can fit it in. Yep. So, do you need a podcast, yeah, it, Coach? It, <laughs> we just might have to add that to the the lineup. We can do a the, daily uh, daily podcast from the, the menu bar, services. <laughs> speaking of um, speaking of Jimmy, what's it like working with um, with Jimmy from QuickBlade? Because you basically invented the V Drive, which is one of the most famous paddles of we've had in the sport. It's been um, very very widely used even more widely copied and um, it kind of set a trend the last five years. Yeah. Working with Jimmy's awesome. I mean, the guy is 
so authentic and so real. And, you know, all you got to do is mention the fact that he's, I mean, it's, it's a really large badge or token of achievement to go to four Olympics. Mm. But that's, that's not really, that doesn't tell the whole story. That tells how good he is and at what level he reached. But the reason he went to four Olympics is because he loves the sport, mm. loves paddling just loves paddling from when he was a little kid to this day, right? His motivation isn't about making money. It's, it's about the fact, and it's all motivated from his love of paddling and wanting to share that. Yeah. And so he and I really connect on that level where we love what we do. We love developing and tinkering and trying to crack the code on our equipment. And so we kind of align on so many levels that uh, it's really fun to work with them. And, you know, no ego, you, you can toss ideas out and we can figure out if that's good or bad or why it would work or why it wouldn't, or better yet, let's try it and forget what we know and, and see if it works or not. Yeah. You know? And does that extend into your, so, you're basically, are you shaping all the, like constantly you're shaping full time with Kalama performance? Like you're making foil boards. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I shape custom boards. I've really tried to develop the production side of my business. Um, and really, you know, again, yeah. Do I need money to pay bills? just like everybody else. Am I doing it for the money? No, because if I was, I'd in the wrong spot, probably mate. be considered an idiot because <laughs> the amount of time I put into it doesn't yeah. even come close to, you know, what I could make if I was doing something smart. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, and like if, if somebody that really knew how to run a business came in and looked at how much money I spend on prototypes, they'd go, Dude, that's, you're not running this right. You're a dummy. <laughs> But I just love tinkering with designs and trying to crack the code on, on all this stuff. And it really is what motivates me and keeps me, you know, inspired to get up and like mm. keep figuring it out and keep getting in the water and trying to make it easier, trying to make it faster, turn better, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like I'm, I'm working really hard to kind of crack the code on prone downwind foiling. And so no, even if I no paddle, even if I figure it out, no paddle, just your hands. Even if I figure it out, you know how many people are potentially going to do that? Ten. <laughs> it's, I know there's no market there, but it's such a challenge. I love trying to do it, and and sort of like how, you know, it might be a bad analogy, but how the U.S. puts money into the space program to get to the moon, the, the real goal isn't about getting on the moon. It's all the development that comes from the technology that it will take to get there. Mm. And so me trying to work on this thing that really doesn't have a, a end game to it has taught me so much along the way that it's affecting my other aspects of my designs and, and you know, wave riding boards and all this other stuff that that alone 
is worth me continuing to try and figure this out because I'm learning so much about foiling and hydrodynamics and all the stuff that's going on that is not apparent initially. Are you doing any, uh, how close are you? Have you done prone, prone foiling? Oh, I can do it. I can do it. Um, it's not easy and I can't guarantee that I will get up should I go down, but I'm at least at the point where I'm pretty confident. And if I'm a little bit patient, um, I will get another swell that will propel me, um, enough to get up and going again. You know, and, and the other thing I got going for me that, um, is a little bit unique is, is I would say probably about eight times out of 10. I can do the entire Maliko run without going down. So that mm. lessens my fears of having to deal with it somewhere out in the deep blue. But it's very much a, a reality that if I do get up on my prone board somewhere along the line, I'm going to have to be able to get back up. Should I go down? Mm. Are you doing anything with the yeah, foil side or just the boards? Like are you involved with Alex? from uh, foil and- No foil size. Foil size is huge. Like if I put the biggest foil on that I have, mm-hmm. it's not. It's yes, I can do it. it. It's not even that much of a concern. My goal is to be able to put a smaller foil size on and still mm-hmm. be able to get up, so that when I do get up, I can ride really aggressively. So what's um, the uh, not? How big are the foil? Like for people that haven't foiled, how big are they? How big and small um, are they? What's the range and what's the difference in performance for a big and a small foil? Well, the, my, my kind of day-to-day downwind foil is the GL180 by GoFoil. Mm-hmm. Um, it, really, it has a great low end, and the high end is still awesome. You know, they make a 210 and, and even a 240. We're talking square inches? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and they make smaller. So, you know, 140 for wave riding is what I use, and the 180 is just the next size up is what I use for downwinding. And if it's really light, I'll go up to the 210. Now, if I'm proning, I'll go to the 210. If I throw the 240 on it, it's like, oh, I'll guarantee get up on my prone. But, um, you know, then I'm on the 240, which is going to sort of limit how aggressively I can ride those swells. But it'll keep me up, which is more the objective than anything else. So it's just like a board, like riding a longboard. If it's bigger... It's easier, but slower, like less maneuverable. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and nothing's written in stone yet. It, I mean, the, the design form is wide open. Mm. Um, but I really, really enjoy the challenge of trying to figure it out, even if there's going to be a small handful of us doing it in the end. But, I mean, right now, um, prone wave riding foiling is probably growing at a much higher rate than stand-up wave mm. riding foiling is yeah so i think there's there's a huge component and community to this foil um population that can't access what i consider just as much fun um as wave riding and yeah. so if i can get them going on the downwinding now you're not waiting. Well, I mean, we're not waiting for swell anyway already because we don't need much. Yeah. But now when it gets windy, if you're just as stoked and you can go out and, and ride wind swell, it's like, 
there, there's you can ride every single day. Yeah. All right, let's uh and have and have the same fun. Like you're not like, "Oh, okay, I guess we'll go downwinding today." Yeah. Well, all right, whatever. You you're like, "Oh, the wind looks good, man. Let's go downwinding." <laughs> well, hopefully I'm going to come over to Maui. Or winging. Yeah, wing. That's just that looks next level. Do you need to be a good windsurfer yeah. to wing foil? Is that a prerequisite no, or no? No. No, that and that's one of the things that's great about the winging is it's it's much easier to learn than windsurfing. It's mm. pro- it's I think easier than kiting, and kiting's easier than windsurfing. Really? So it's even next level easier. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, you know, it really really helps if you already know how to foil, but you don't need to be a good foiler. Yeah. All right, let's. Uh, so. I'm going to come over in July for downwind month. Let's get out on the the wing foil. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, you come over tomorrow, the whole next week looks like smoking <laughs> trades, which is kind of out of out of season in a way. I mean, supposedly right now is our calm season, but uh, the trades have just been fantastic lately. So, no worries. So you get back- blown out and the wind smoking. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just as happy. Well, uh, we might have to wrap it up then. I'll let you go. Get back out in the water. We'll um, we'll pencil in. We'll pencil in Maui, and then we'll definitely pencil in Fiji in November. Save me a spot for the podcast. <laughs> Sounds good, Chris. Well, uh, Dave, with you. thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'd love to do another one of these with you because we could probably talk all day. But um, we'll wrap it up there. I'll let yeah. you get back out in the foil. And uh, All right. Take care. Yeah, man. Hopefully, chat with you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All righty. So uh, there we go, Dave Kalama, the man, the legend. He's um, he's been the pioneer of many many sports over the years, and now he's leading the way with foil downwinding over there on Maui. I'm going to start looking at plane tickets. That sounds like fun. Thank you to everyone that was watching live, and if you're listening to this on Spotify or uh, one of the podcast apps, then well, hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> and uh, stay tuned. We'll do a few more of these over the next week before we head off to the big Glagla race. In France next week, I'll be live streaming that race on the 18th of January. Very exciting. Um, I think we'll just leave it there. Thanks for watching, folks.